Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Annika Nordquist. Today we have actually a repeat guest from season one, Mary Eberstadt, who holds the Panula Chair in Christian Culture at the Catholic Information Center in Washington, D.C., and is a senior research fellow at the Faith and Reason Institute. She's an essayist, novelist, and author of many influential books. Today, we're going to discuss her most recent publication, Adam and Eve After the Pill Revisited, which is the decade-later follow-up to her book, Adam and Eve After the Pill, which, back in 2012, predicted some of the gender-related issues we're having today. In this conversation, we're going to cover some pretty tough and controversial topics surrounding the sexual revolution, such as what its unintended consequences were, whether its intended consequences were good or bad, and how Protestants and Catholics sometimes view these questions differently. So with no further ado, I hope you find our dialogue interesting. Mary, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Annika. You kind of latched on to this topic about the sexual revolution long before it was cool to do so. You've republished a book that you wrote 10 years ago. I'm sort of curious, what was it that drew you to this topic about the sexual revolution um, and its defects so early before anyone else was really talking about it? Well, thank you. There is a story there. <laughs> so... Um, I have written in various genres. I've written a novel. Uh, poetry is about the only genre I haven't written in. Um, <laughs> so before I got down this road, I was reviewing widely. I was a generalist. And I was asked to write an essay for the 40th anniversary of the papal encyclical Humanae Vitae. And before I could write the essay, I had to actually read the document for the first time. And when I did, I was floored because I knew from other research that the predictions made in that document were not just predictions. They were actually things that had come true. Hmm. So in 1968, just as the sexual revolution is exploding, the Vatican issues what may be the most publicly reviled global document of the last hundred years, Humanae Vitae. And in it, uh, the Pope reiterated the teaching against artificial contraception. The predictions the document made if contraceptive sex were to be embraced were, for example, the prediction that it would lead to an increased amount of tension between men and women and increased romantic problems. Mm. Another prediction was that governments would come to use contraceptive technologies coercively, which came true around the world in the years following 1968. Mm. Another prediction was that there would be a rise in infidelity and a general lowering of moral standards, and so on. And so I was really struck by the amount of data that perfectly secular researchers had amassed that would support each of these predictions. And so I started in on a more or less methodical examination of the sexual revolution issuing Adam and Eve After the Pill, the first book, 10 years ago, as you note, 
And that book was an attempt to cover what I called the microscopic territory of the revolution. That is the effects of contraceptive sex on men, women, children, really grassroots stuff. This book, a little over a decade later, Adam and Eve After the Pill Revisited, is actually an entirely new book. It's not a reissued book. It looks at the sexual revolution from the widest possible angle. I'm asking what has been the effect of these decades since 1968 or so on politics, society, and Christianity itself. And so this, I see, is a kind of macroscopic attempt to ascertain just what the legacy of the revolution is, because for a very long time, there's been happy talk about it. And the dominant secular view of the sexual revolution is, of course, a positive view. But I think the evidence has pointed for some time in the opposite direction, indicating that this revolution has not done humanity any favors and instead has introduced new problems into social life. Yeah, and it's interesting to me, this narrative that kind of uh, the sexual revolution has been really good, then has been tempered by the Me Too narrative, which you talk about in your book as well. And it's interesting to me because that narrative says that it's sort of calling men to be better um, as though kind of men have always been this bad. That's kind of the push, right? Is patriarchy, men have always been this bad. And in your book, you kind of point to the opposite and point to ways in which actually things have gotten worse recently, that it actually kind of wasn't always this bad. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Well, in the book, I draw on the research of, again, perfectly secular economists, because the sexual revolution presents us initially with a paradox. Contraception was supposed to be a boon to family life. That's how it was sold to people. The thought was that if you put men and women in charge of their fertility, that things would be easier for them. And this would strengthen marriage and reduce abortion. This was Margaret Sanger's argument. She said that contraception would reduce abortion. Instead, we know now exactly the opposite happened. Rates of abortion skyrocketed Broken homes did too, and single parent homes brought on by broken families proliferated. None of this was expected in the early days of the birth control pill, but all of it happened for a simple reason, as economists explain. The reason is that as of contraception, there is no more social pressure on men to take responsibility in the case of an unplanned pregnancy because an unplanned pregnancy becomes a, quote, failure on the woman's part. The burden is put on her. And so we have this radical shift in relations between the sexes that results in men no longer having to take responsibility for a woman, which in turn makes them less likely to form families. And we see this, too, in the data on later marriage rates, in the number of people who no longer marry at all. These are all unforeseen consequences of contraception. I guess just a quick sort of clarification question. Um, you know, when you talk about in your book, I sort of found that you use the sexual revolution and then the pill or contraception almost synonymously. Like, would you say that's accurate, that you would describe the two as like really the same? Or is there a separate sort of technological and ideological strand? 
Yeah, I use them interchangeably because I think it is defensible given that what we're talking about is the destigmatization mm. of non-marital sex, which is another consequence of making it possible for women to uh, avoid pregnancy. Yeah. You draw a really interesting uh, train of causality um, from the sexual revolution itself to a host of other things. And one that, that really caught my eye uh, was the opioid addiction, which I think isn't something that people have thought about because they think, well, that's sort of like a men's problem and issues surrounding sex and birth control. Those are women's problems. And so what I find very interesting about the way that you address it is that you sort of view it all as one issue. Do you have any thought? I mean, explain the train of causality for me a little bit. Um, but is there a sense in which both sexes are dealing with the same problem? Or would you say that there really are kind of unique issues right now for both sexes? I think the word that comes to mind is loneliness. Yeah. A lot of people are profoundly lonely in a way that they weren't when there were, for example, families in which one had nine siblings and scores of cousins and many aunts and uncles and a lot of people who love you. This is what's gone missing since 1968. And mm. it's been compounded uh, with each generation, I think. So when we look at something like the substance abuse problem, and let me add, I'm hardly a Pollyanna about this, but I do come from the Rust Belt. I'm very aware of the opioid epidemic. And when we see that there are rates of addiction today that have never existed before in American history. And we see that women are drinking alcohol at rates that they never did before in American history. And we see what is well documented for several decades now, which is the rise in psychiatric problems, especially among the young. When we look at all this, I think what we're seeing is a kind of civilizational disintegration. And the question is, what's at the root of it? My argument in this book, Adam and Eve After the Pill Revisited, is that what is at the root of all that is the subtraction of people out of people's lives. What's at the root of it is the atomization of the individual. More and more people simply have few others in their lives that they can count on. Mm. And that too is a profound change. People have never lived like this before. Yeah, it's interesting to me that you frame it in that way, because I think I think a lot of people think of sexual revolution or really anything else as it has pros and cons. But in saying that the problem is that people's families are too small, you're saying even what is conceived still as the pro of contraception and the sexual revolution is, in fact, a con. Am I understanding that correctly? Yes, you are, because what we have to look at is what does it mean that so many families are smaller and broken? One thing it means, and I talk about this in the book, is a decline in social learning. Mm. Now, what do I mean by that? We are social animals, and like other animals, we're not born knowing how to be men or women or human beings. We learn these things from the people around us, just as elephants learn to be elephants by watching their mothers primarily and their siblings. So what happens in a world where, say, 40% of American kids don't have a biological father in the home? So there's no male role model there on which to model 
Or what happens in a world where more and more people grow up without siblings or without siblings of the opposite sex? These are the elemental ways in which human beings learn about other human beings. And we have taken a lot of that knowledge off the table, inadvertently, but really. And let me just walk through it really quickly, Annika. So what happens after the sexual revolution? An increase in abortion, an increase in fatherless homes, uh, smaller families. Uh, all of these things are acts of subtraction. They take human beings out of the lives of other mm. human beings. This to me is the most unanticipated consequence of the sexual revolution and the least examined. Mm. But we have taken out of our lives people who could love us, teach us, give us business connections, you name it, all the things that human beings bring to the table. There is less and less of that now than there was before the embrace of contraceptive sex. Yeah, and you phrase it, I think, really well in your book. You say that people have turned to strained substitutes for kin. What? Talk to me a little bit about that. What? What is the the reaction of of people? How? What do they do instead without these kinds of ways of learning and these kinds of connections? So one form that this substitution takes is political, I believe, and a yeah. third of the book is about what has happened to our politics since the nineteen sixties. And one of the first things we notice is the rise of identity politics. Identity politics, the very phrase is coined in 1977, very suggestively, just as the first generation born into the revolution comes of age. Uh, some feminists in New England released a document, a manifesto, using that phrase identity politics, in which they said, we are giving up on the men in our lives. We don't trust anyone else to have our backs. We just are sticking to our own kind, meaning people exactly like us, women. This is the birth of identity politics. So it's born in a broken place. And more and more, we have seen this absolutist attachment to groups based on ethnicity, based on race, based mm. on erotic feelings. And if you look at the absolutism people bring to these groups, what you see, I think, is the kind of loyalty that used to be something confined to the family, mm. the kind of unbidden loyalty that one would feel to one's own. And that's why there's no compromise within these groups. You know, if you transgress, you are kicked out. You're, you're cast into the wilderness forever. There is no redemption because these groups are operating like mafiosi, essentially. Mm. And they are also fulfilling for the people in them some of the needs that robust families supply, like protection and connection to other human beings. So it's an interesting thought experiment to wonder whether we would even have identity politics without the sexual revolution. And I think the answer to that is no. Mm, really interesting. Um, I want to draw back a little bit um, because we talked a little bit about loneliness and solitude, and I want to address that now before the conversation veers further down the, the family structure line. Because uh, in your you know, you, you mentioned loneliness. In your book, you talk about unnatural solitude, which really resonated with me because I do think there's kind of a distinction between a healthy solitude and unhealthy solitude. And in fact, 
earlier on this podcast, one of our earlier episodes with uh, William Derizowitz, was making the case that people actually aren't spending enough time alone and that there is no real solitude because of technology. So when you talk about loneliness and solitude and unnatural solitude, what separates that kind of solitude from a healthy solitude of a person who enjoys time to be contemplative, either sort of for personal introversion reasons or, or for religious reasons? What I have in mind is something that I think we all recognize, which is that many people, most younger people, are spending six, seven, eight, ten hours online a day instead of connecting with other human beings. And that is a very different kind of solitude from the kind that you are describing that is productive and introspective. So the the thing talking about, um, you know, the family rupture that kind of frightens me about it is it just seems to, to me in some ways Im immediately irreversible, you know, because these kinds of things are inherited generation to generation. Do you have any any thought on I mean, it just seems to me that it would be much easier to um, convince you know, people who already have intact families to maintain intact families than it is to reverse the trend of, of people who already don't have intact families? Yes, that's a great question, because now many kids are growing up without even knowing what that looks like, right? Yeah. So part of what motivates my work in trying to establish the true legacy of what has happened since the 1960s is the thought that if these facts come to light, they might actually have an effect on people's behavior and people's future, because these are, as we all know, difficult subjects to discuss, at least for some people. Yeah. And there is not a family in America that has not been affected by the sexual revolution in all kinds of ways. But what motivates me is the idea that we could reduce some of the suffering out there mm. if people knew what the proper name was for it. So in other words, when we see people uh, demonstrating, when we see demonstrations full of enraged protesters who are angry at something like heteronormativity, I see in that something very different. Mm. I see a rage and a loneliness that I don't think anything as abstract as heteronormativity can explain. I think we're seeing a lot of disconnection out there. And what's different about my work is that I'm trying to honor what I think is authentic suffering, especially on the part of many young people. I think it's been wrong to dismiss that suffering as so much snowflakeism, the way mm. some tradition-minded people do, because what's really ailing them is a people deficit. What is ailing many of us by now, this many decades after 1968, is a people deficit. And my hope is that if we can just put the right name to what the problem is, it will affect other things in life, like personal decisions. Yeah, I, I love the way that you put that, because I it is. I mean, it's annoying, I think, for people of my generation and below to to see people labeled snowflakes. And it's like such a valid question. I mean, what makes people fragile? And nothing makes people more fragile, I think, than being on bad footing when it comes to the most basic and important things about your life. Yes. And also, it's interesting, Annika, because even now, 
everywhere on the political spectrum, women in particular say what they want most in life is a family, Mm. usually accompanied by marriage. And these things have become harder to get. The revolution has made them just harder to find. And as you point out, they're also harder to find because a lot of people don't have an app for that anymore, right? They've never seen it themselves. So that too is part of the frustration out there. It's the understanding that these things have become somehow more difficult. And I'm trying to explain what that somehow is. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people have really... I mean, yeah, just talking with girls my age, there's not really like a good understanding of how one gets from point A to point B, I think is a really big problem because, yeah, you're told that certain behaviors are normal, you know, in terms of dating and when to date and how long to date and how much to date. And it's just you don't wind up getting to to point B in, in as high numbers as people think they do when they go into dating as an adult. The key there is to find a community of like-minded people because for sure what we're talking about now the idea of the natural family has become a countercultural institution and especially since so many people haven't seen it up close and personal it helps to find groups of people who can share these ideas in a safe space as the saying goes I think that's really important and actually one of the things I'm encouraged about is that there's are so many more such groups on campuses than there used to be. Usually, though not always with a religious base, but uh, Focus Fellowship of Catholic University students, for example, is now on over 100 campuses. It didn't even exist 20 years ago. And the same is true for other groups, the Love and Fidelity Network, for example. There are lots of places where people inclined toward ideas can find a community where those ideas are batted around in a healthy way, I think. And that's that's good news. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, and I, I think that's a really good segue to chatting about the religious connections that you draw in your book, which are really important to talk about and really central. In your book, you point out the link between what you call religious vibrancy and family vibrancy. And I think that's really interesting because I think a lot of people think of religion as this very individual experience that's, I guess, not exclusively, but at least primarily individual and less so something that's very tightly entwined um, with broader units, but particularly broader personal units, like a broader family unit, as opposed to a broader faith community. So can you talk to me a little bit about why it is the case that those kinds of connections exist? And if there's any kind of hope or silver lining or or a way forward based off of that connection? Sure. Well, people can find their way to religion as individuals. That happens all the time. But like anything else, it's easier if you have a posse, right? Yeah. (laughs) And so in bringing in the family and church connection, what I'm describing is a historical dynamic, actually, which is that When churches are strong, it's because the families in them are strong. And conversely, if you see family disarray in a society, you should expect religious disarray because the family is the backbone of the church in different ways. Number one, just as a logistical matter, it's how the faith is transmitted. And so if you have, say, a case of divorce where a child is in a different home every other weekend, that much less likely that religious instruction takes place, right? So that's just a pedestrian example. But I think 
the the relationship between the churches and the family uh, works in another more metaphysical way, which is that across religions, the larger the family, the more religious the people. Definitely. This is true for uh, Judaism, for Islam, and for Christianity. So what's going on in that relationship? Some theorists think, well, it's just that people who are religious have been told to have children, and so they do. But I think you can flip that around and say, wait a minute, maybe it's that the participation in creation that these large families have is inclining them toward religion in the first place. And in fact, several years ago, I wrote a whole book about this called How the West Really Lost God, because I think this dynamic is essential to understanding what we're seeing in Western secularization now. What we are not seeing is what people think. What people think is that science and prosperity account for the decline of the churches. But there are too many counterexamples for that argument to hold up, and we can't get into all of them there. But suffice it to say that the evidence does not show that prosperity drives out God. Something else is happening in Western secularization, and I think it has to do with the revolution's effect on the family. Yeah, I mean, I think in, in many ways it's true, but maybe there's sort of a chink in it. I think that we sort of think of ourselves as living in this very uniquely secular age, but you've kind of alluded in the abstract to other examples um, in which family breakdown and secularization have been connected. Can, can you talk a little bit about what those are? Sure. Well, let me talk about it the other way. Let me show you examples yeah. of strong families and strong churches. So after 1945, after all of the carnage of World War II, mm. there was a baby boom. We all know that. Everybody's living with the consequences. <laughs> this is true not only in the United States, but in all the Western countries. There was a spike in births. What people do not know as well is that this was accompanied by something else, a religious boom. It was a religious boom including in places that are very secular today, like New Zealand, hmm. like New Zealand and Canada, and on across Western Europe, people were going back to church. And this was so remarkable that one prominent American sociologist said, the village atheist is withering away. This is pretty incredible in retrospect, but this religious boom lasted from 1945 until 1963. And in 1963, something happens that results in the churches losing people, that results in families getting smaller, that results in the kind of decline that we see today. Mm. And a lot of theorists have looked at this and come up with different explanations. But I think the obvious explanation is this is when the sexual revolution starts and its effects on families reverberate throughout the churches. Yeah, it's really interesting that you say that because, I mean, the baby boom generation is sort of the generation that bucks the trend in a way because they were a generation that did have religious upbringings and intact families and what have you. And then, you know, were the first to kind of not pass it on. And I was sort of like mulling over why that might be the case, you know, because it's sort of the exception, I guess, to the rule where they are passing on these kind of things, but they themselves were very intact. Yeah, well, there's a head-on collision that happens in the 60s, right? Because the Christian rule book about sex and marriage is strict and difficult, 
and people have always complained about it. The <laughs> apostles are the first people to complain about yeah. it. And they say these are hard teachings. But then along comes the birth control pill and promises to turn life into one unending party. Yeah. And people choose. And most people, I think, chose the side of the party. It's interesting also, I mean, you talk a lot in your book about the decline of mainline Protestantism, which I guess I should preface having been raised like Lutheran Episcopalian, um, no longer now more evangelical, but I sort of have some personal stake in this. Uh, it's sort of interesting because I think people have a lot of ideas about why it was. And general theological liberalism, I think is I, a lot of people think is a big part of it. But you sort of go a step further and put the blame like specifically on contraception. Talk to me a little bit about that. Sure. Well, first we have to get into the history a little bit. Yeah. So all of the Protestant churches condemned contraception. Martin Luther condemned it particularly, and so did John Calvin. So this unanimity is not broken until 1930 with the Lambeth mm. Conference of the Anglican Communion. There had been fights for years before that about allowing contraception. Of course, this is well before the birth control pill, but there are devices. Yeah. And this time around, the people who said, let's make one tiny exception for married couples who are in a very difficult situation in consultation with their minister, et cetera, mm. there were all of these rules attached to the permission to use contraception. And what we learned from that experiment is that that line did not hold because very soon the Anglicans had to walk that back and legitimize contraception for all, essentially, sometimes even saying it was the better choice. And following their lead, a lot of the other Protestant churches did the same. So that's where we start. We start with the fact that these teachings that go back 2,000 years were unanimously accepted, at least in a theological sense, up until 1930. It was interesting to me, like, I mean, because 1930 is, as you note, pre the pill. I mean, talk to me a little bit about how that even comes about. Like, I mean, I just it's surprising to me that before the sexual revolution even occurred, it was already, uh, you know, kind of a touch point controversial issue. I mean, what happened in, in 1930 that it suddenly became controversial? Yeah, it's a great question. I tend to think this is technological shock, that whatever devices were being discussed had become foolproof enough mm. that the question was raised, can married people use these things? And note that in the beginning, it's only about married people. Nobody had the idea that this would soon spread throughout the population. Yeah, I think, I mean, then there's sort of like the next line that you draw, which is between contraception and homosexuality in the church. And I think for a lot of Protestants, that's where it, it feels a little bit, we'll say gently, we'll say confusing, mm -hmm. <laughs> a little bit confusing. I think a lot of people, it's dangerous to speak on behalf of all Protestants, it'd be difficult to do so. But many sort of more conservative Protestants don't really think of these as the same type of issue. Can you talk to me a little bit about how you see kind of a, a direct connection between those two issues? Sure. I see it as a logical connection, and I think that's the way it unfolded. So in other words, contraception amounts to the idea that 
it's theologically okay to engage in purposely sterile sex, right? That's what it comes down to. And the objection that, well, but you know, women of a certain age can't get pregnant, et cetera, et cetera, that, that does not really get in the mix of this because we are talking about acts that in theory could result in a conception, right? So once you say it's theologically okay for people to engage in purposely sterile sex, sex that they've gone out of their way to make sure will not result in a child, you have no way of drawing the line at any other kind of purposely sterile sex. And th that's what I mean about the connection between okaying contraception and okaying homosexuality, because there's no longer any reason to say, well, people engaging in homosexual behavior are in a different category. No, if it is okay for heterosexuals to have purposely sterile sex, then it's okay for homosexuals as a logical matter. And this is, I think, the way it unfolded in the churches. First, contraception was accepted. And then some decades later, it took longer or less time, depending on the church, homosexuality was also accepted. Well, I have many points of disagreement, but maybe we'll just... <laughs> I'm not saying always and everywhere, but as, yeah, yeah, yeah. as a matter of logic, one thing leads to the other. And within the Catholic Church right now, there are voices that would also like to okay yeah. contraception. And they are aligned with the voices that would also like to okay homosexuality. And there's a reason for that alliance. And the reason is that logically these things are related. Yeah, I take that seriously. I guess to me, I mean, the idea that sex is just reducible to, you know, purely a um, a reproductive function is kind of where I take an issue with that, where I think there's there's other factors, right, that impact, yeah, this the spiritual position of sex that separate us from other animals where it is primarily for a reproductive function. I don't know, but <laughs> we don't have to go down this rabbit hole all the way. <laughs> Well, there's a lot that could be said about yeah. that, but, and I'm not saying that my argument about the logical connection is the only argument that yeah. can be made. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying yeah. it, it's it, it's evident. So, but I guess, I mean, moving on to discussing Humanae Vitae, which I'll admit I did not know what it was until I read your book, but now I do, <laughs> the, the encyclical Humanae Vitae, I think... I mean, it's sort of interesting because you describe the the contraception disagreement as being really like a fundamental break between Catholics and Protestants, which I think is true in a sense. I think maybe more Catholics feel that way than Protestants. And I think that was sort of another kind of hang up that I had was that, I mean, the way that you discuss it, I don't think that there's so much in, in every Protestant, even very liberal Protestants, if you went to them, the first thing they would say about the differences between Protestants and Catholics would have to do with sex. I think people are still thinking primarily about kind of older debates about Sola Scriptura and the saints and things like that. I guess part of the, the reason for that is that a lot of Protestants don't see the, the opposition to contraception playing out in practice for the Catholics around us. I mean, the birth rate for Protestants and Catholics is 
pretty much identical, um, despite the theological differences in America. So I guess, uh, do you have any kind of thoughts on not to be too pugnacious about it, but the utility of humana vitae? Because uh, I think for a lot of Protestants, the feeling is, you know, we'll take it seriously when we see others take it seriously, you know? <laughs> That's fair enough. So, <laughs> again, we have to go back to the beginning because Humanae Vitae is nothing more than a restatement of 2,000 years of teaching. And before Humanae Vitae, there were other encyclicals just reiterating this ancient teaching against artificial contraception. So back at the very beginning, as we know, Jesus says some pretty hard things. And yeah. the, the early Christian community is extreme even by the standards of the Jewish community, which had pretty strict rules of its own, and to this day, the Orthodox frown on contraception. So a number of behaviors are just taken off the table. Abortion, bestiality, homosexuality, contraception, the early Christians hammer this all out and say, we can't do these things. So why might that be? I've wondered about this a lot. Mm. Uh, from to talk about theology for a minute, from say a God's point of view, why? Why are you telling people not to interfere with creation? Well, for one thing, we're told creation is good. And for another thing, maybe it's about obedience. Maybe it's about not making yourself God, not thinking that you call the shots on all these things. So that's just a rabbit hole of my own that I sometimes go into because it's fascinating to wonder about why that was so, but it was so. And these rules endured for, as I say, um, 2,000 years. I couldn't agree with you more. Most Catholics do not pay attention to Humanae Vitae. They say things like, well, I disagree with the Pope about birth control, which is actually not something that makes a lot of sense because it's <laughs> kind of like saying, well, I disagree with the fourth commandment. Uh, but it is a common position for sure. And my point is just, where is the truth? Because truth is truth, whether five people are living by it or five million people are living by it. And the fact that so many Catholics ignore this um, is not a test of the truth of the teaching or a test of the truth of whether it's made people more miserable to live in this new post-1960s way, which is a whole nother subject. Yeah, I, I guess, again, to put a little bit of a finer point on it, I mean, what do you see then as the trajectory and the future of it? I mean, I assume that the the goal would be to get to a point where people are abiding by it and taking it seriously, kind of despite whatever you know, and there there are very serious practical issues. I think plenty of people don't follow it because of practicality, not necessarily because they like have some deep theological disagreement about it. I mean, how, how do you see that trajectory working out? Or is there anything else that the church should be doing? The church should not be apologizing. This is a problem all over the place. The church should not be playing defense. It should be playing offense because if these two books that we're talking about, both of the Adam and Eve books, are right, if the facts in those books are right, then traditional teaching is being vindicated by the mess that we see around us. And it's being vindicated by the suffering that we're seeing out there. Mm. 
And so I think that should be shouted from every pulpit in the land. Uh, but obviously people are not in a triumphalist mood. To say <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's an element of like, could it be a Pyrrhic victory? It's like there's been so much lost along the way that it's hard to feel victorious even about being correct. Yeah. I mean, the disobedience about contraception in the Catholic Church is also not the only problem in the Catholic Church that is resulting in people leaving the pews. We've had uh, quite a few sexual scandals of horrifying dimensions. And I think a certain failure to communicate the faith, when you say mm. that Protestants are unaware of what exactly is this teaching against contraception, that's a that's not a failure of Protestants. That's a failure of Catholic leaders to articulate these teachings in a way that makes sense to people. So on the other hand, on the kind of granular level, what I can say, and this is hopeful, is that in Washington, D.C., at the Catholic Information Center, where I sometimes hang out, we see a lot of young professionals. We have a lot of programs for them. And what I notice about them is that some of the best Catholics we are getting are converts, and they are coming in precisely in reaction to the post-revolutionary culture precisely because they don't believe what the secular culture is telling them. They don't believe pornography is harmless, for example, and they don't believe that it's a matter of indifference whether you have a family. Hmm. So this very mess that we're in is giving rise to a healthy counterculture. And over time, that might really change the picture of what we're seeing today. I mean, I sort of wonder, because I think a lot of people look at Europe as like America 10 years in the future sometimes when it comes to stuff like this, you know, that they sort of take the more socially liberal or progressive or secular or whatever opinion sort of like 10 years earlier than we do. And then we take it on. I mean, obviously, there are issues with taking that too literally. But just in general, like when you look abroad, um, I mean, Asia actually has even deeper fertility issue than America. So it's not just Europe. But like when you look at kind of the way that these issues are playing out in other places, which are more secular, do you see any lessons that we should be bearing in mind? Well, first, let me say the United States is different. We just are different. Yeah. It's always been different. And to credit the Protestant majority, we have had more awakenings and reawakenings and new religions, mm. new forms of Christianity born here than any other country. It's really remarkable. So one has to assume that that religious vibrancy, that unique religious fervor mm. that comes and goes is still there and could still result in a new awakening of some kind. I would think that much more likely mm. in the United States than in Western Europe. Yeah, I guess to kind of start closing this off here. So We've kind of talked, you talked at the beginning of this interview about civilizational decline. Um, and to me, that's a really scary thought. Um, I mean, I think there are many ways in which it's clearly true, but it's also really frightening because it makes you feel totally helpless. Like even if I and the people immediately around me kind of get things back on track, that there's still not much hope because it's a symptom of kind of a bigger civilizational problem. Um, do you have any words of hope? Do you think there's anything that we can do about these kinds of issues? Absolutely. I'm very hopeful myself for reasons that we talked about earlier somewhat. 
It is the growth on college campuses of new religious and non-religious organizations geared toward a, a sympathetic hearing for small orthodoxy of different kinds. I think there's a rising awareness outside of church circles that the revolution has been problematic. We are seeing books during the last few years, one in England, one in France, one in Germany, written by women questioning the sexual revolution, questioning various aspects of it. And we also saw this kind of questioning during the Me Too movement when a lot of very secular, progressive young women came forward and started asking why they were being mistreated in this way. So the more mm. the evidence mounts, the more society is going to be forced to give a second look to the sexual revolution. And we have this kind of renorming all the time. I mean, I guess this is the point I'm trying to get at, that this is supposed to be the one and only social movement that is inevitable. And we hear this all the yeah. time. There's no turning back the clock. There's no putting the genie back in the bottle. This is what Shakespeare called protesting too much. When you have so many phrases <laughs> to make the same point, you're protesting too much. And that, I think, is what people do, because deep down, defenders of the revolution sense that there is something amiss here, that they are not really on solid ground here. And that's why we saw so much fervor over the Dobbs decision, because Dobbs was the first major institutional rollback of the revolution itself. And so now that we've gotten to this pass with more and more voices questioning the way we're living now, questioning where our problems are coming from, I think that the future looks to be at least to have a shot at being a more humane place than the one we find ourselves in. So I find that very hopeful. And also, I'm hopeful because I think the way we've been living is very unnatural for the kinds of social creatures that we are. Mm. And like other animals, we need each other very much. And I think there is a rising awareness that we are not getting what we need as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the way that you kind of point to the transparency issue when you talk about this topic, that there's like been this sort of huge push kind of from on high about, you know, the way these topics are discussed. Um, and there's not been much honesty up until this point um, about it is, yeah, really important. I think one thing that's also helpful is that, say, 10 years ago or so, when the first Adam and Eve book was published, nobody in the public square, apart from religious people, uh, nobody was questioning pornography and its effect on human relationships. And now we are hearing that more and more. It really reminds me of the beginnings of the uh, tide that turned against tobacco smoking. Hmm. And I say that not to stigmatize smokers, but it took a lot of work to get people not to smoke indoors and not to smoke in certain places and not to smoke, period. And it was all because of a public health campaign that kept drawing attention to the harms suffered by some people because of tobacco. This had to go on for decades and decades, and I think something like that will go on about the sexual revolution. But I do believe we are already seeing the upside here. Really interesting. Well, thank you so much for your time, Mary. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thanks for having me, Annika. Well, there you have it, Madisonians. 
Mary Eberstadt on the sexual revolution and its consequences. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to like, comment, and subscribe. You can also find us on Twitter at Madison Program, as well as on Facebook and Instagram. Our website, jmp.princeton.edu, is a great resource that has all of our upcoming events, all of our lectures. You can subscribe to our mailing list through there. So if you're interested in what we do on Princeton's campus and beyond, I would really encourage you to check it out. Thanks so much for tuning in, and see you next time here on Madison's Notes.